wibble-wibble-wibble-wibble-wibble-wibble-wibble. If you understood that greeting and found it offensive, I apologise. I have no idea what I just said. Welcome back to Physics for Fish, the podcast for all life forms under the sun, and above the sun, and in places the sun has nothing to do with. This week, I'm talking to Nabil Iqbal about big things and small things. So pretty much everything, really. Hello, thank you so much for coming on to Physics for Fish. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing quite well, thank you. How have you been? Yeah, not too bad. It's it's lovely to be able to finally sit down with you and chat. Sure, sure. Can I ask, is this already part of it or...? Um... It's hard to know. I mean... <laughs> okay. So I had a little cheeky look at your website and it says that your interests are string theory, quantum field theory and gravity. And then it says that uh, much of your research deals with the idea that these seemingly diverse concepts are just sometimes different parts of the same elephant. I mean, we definitely have to cover all of those topics. But first of all, tell me about the parable of the elephant, because these fish, are um, they live in a completely different dimension to us. Fantastic. So they don't have elephants then? They um... may struggle to understand what an elephant is, but we'll, uh, we'll maybe not go that basic. <laughs> okay, okay. In case you're wondering, an elephant is a certain kind of earth mammal. Bigger than a plum, smaller than Jupiter, covered in skin. <laughs> so basically, there's, a, there's an elephant. And then there's a couple of uh, blind people, I think they might be monks in the original story, who are trying to describe what the elephant is. And then um, one of the monks goes and he holds uh, the tail of the elephant and he says, ah, this is a rope because the tail of an elephant feels like a rope. And the other monk goes and touches the, the foot of the elephant, you know, the leg and says, ah, no, no, it's not a rope, it's a tree. And um, that's the idea that depending on what parts of the elephant you touch, it can look very, very different. And um, in many ways, theoretical physics is kind of like that. We think that many things have like a sort of broad, very deep structure, and we only sort of see hints and pieces of it. Like if you take a system and you look at it in one way, you might think, ah, this is a system with gravity in it. But if you look at it in a different way, you might think, ah, this system has no gravity in it. It's actually just a system of particles that don't gravitate. And um, this is, I think, sort of the fun of theoretical physics now. You can, you can think about these systems that can be thought of in many different ways, and then you can try to apply them to our world. And many of us, including me, I think, think that our world is kind of like this elephant. You know, we, we think we live in a world that has gravity in it, but that might not be the best way to think about it. There might be a different way to think about it where uh, there's no gravity, but it's one lower dimension. So let's let's talk about gravity then. Presumably gravity is like the big thing that we're going to tackle. Yeah. Gravity is sort of interesting because I think for most people, gravity is like the, uh, it's like the most basic force, right? You know, if you ask people, what are the forces they might or might not know about the weak nuclear force, and the electromagnetism and so on. But everyone knows about gravity, right? Yeah. It's, like the, it's like the most obvious one. Yeah. But it's sort of fun because it's also the one that we sort of understand the least in a, in a deep way, I think. It's sort of the most fun one. So, yeah. Is it a force? Um, Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I know. That's, that's a good question. It, it feels a lot like a force, right? It's the thing that's keeping you from floating out of your chair. Um, so it's, it's in a sense a force. But the more sophisticated way to think about it is not in terms of a force. The thing that we call gravity, we now understand is really the, the curvature of space and time. So this is what Einstein taught us, that when something gravitates, it's because it curves space around it. And everything else feels that curvature and moves in that curvature in a certain way. Uh, we actually touched on this last week. We talked quite a lot about seeing space and time as, as kind of two sides of the same coin and the, this curvature that comes with it. But we didn't really link gravity into that picture. So last week, you probably talked about how space and time can be sort of moved into each other in, in some way, right? They're 
Uh, they're different aspects of the same idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then so once you have that, if you think about it hard enough, then uh, then you realize that um, when you have matter moving around in the space and time, it, it's almost inevitable that the space and time will become curved, that the matter will affect it and curve it in a certain way. Then that is what we call gravity. Like the curvature of space and time is really what we call gravity. Is that all that it is? I mean, that sounds very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, um, okay, I'm saying it in a straightforward way, hopefully. But um, I think saying that that's all that it is, is sort of, a, it's, not, it's not fair to the, to the theory of gravity, I think. The universe is, is expanding. This is something that was sort of forced upon us. Once the universe begins at a certain time, it almost has to either expand or contract. It, it cannot stay static. Why? Why? Well, why? So that's, that's a good question. So um, imagine you have space, okay? But space has stuff in it, right? It has stars in it. We know that. That's a fact. Yeah. The stars. So if you now take space and you put some stars in it, um, what's going to happen? Gravity means that everything attracts everything else, right? That's basically what gravity does. Yeah. So those stars are going to attract each other. So if you think about it, it's not really a stable situation to have space full of stars and have them just sitting there, right? They're going to want to move towards each other. They're going to want to clump and move towards each other. And this is an instability, actually. Like, you cannot have space stay static if it's full of stars. So, you know, what, what can you do? You can sort of give up on it and just let the universe collapse onto itself. Bad idea. <laughs> Bad idea, yes. This is unpleasant for the people living in it. Um, or what you could do is uh, you could start the universe with a giant explosion. And if you do that, you see everything is moving away from itself. That's what that's sort of the idea, that space is expanding, meaning everything is moving away from itself. And then even though it, the stars are attracting each other, you know, they're moving away from each other fast enough, that attraction doesn't win. Instead, the expansion wins. And this appears to be the universe that we live in today, that it's expanding quickly enough that expansion can counteract the natural tendency of matter to collapse. When it comes to big things, they don't get much bigger than the universe. But where would gravity be without our good friend, the black hole? The idea of a black hole is actually not that hard to understand. If you imagine you're standing on the surface of the Earth and, uh, and you throw something up into the air, if you throw it up, it's going to fall down again, right? Yeah. But if you throw it a little bit harder, it will go a little bit further before it falls down. And if you throw it harder still, it'll go a little bit further still before it falls down. Mm -hmm. And at some point, if you throw it hard enough, then it'll just escape to infinity. Right. And there's a sort of critical speed that, that lets it do that, which is called the escape velocity. Yeah. Right. And here's a question you can ask, even if you don't know anything about general relativity or anything, really, just, just, if you just imagine yourself on the earth throwing a ball. You can ask what happens when that escape velocity becomes so high that it's higher than the speed of light. Mm. Okay. Now, you know, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So if you take that really, really seriously, you know, you, you might be tempted to, to imagine that it's possible to have something where the speed you need to be moving to escape from it is so high that nothing can escape because nothing can move faster than light. Sure. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And this argument, actually, um, I think it was Laplace who first came up with this argument in the 1700s. If you follow this argument to, to its like logical conclusion... Um, you actually find, you, you convince yourself, even in the, the normal, easy, like elementary or high school theory of gravity, that uh, you should have a critical radius uh, around an, a massive object that, from which you can't escape from, okay? And the really amazing thing is that if you, if you now take Einstein's theory and you think about it very, very hard, you find out this really does happen, that if you have enough matter in one place, then it creates a force of gravity that's so strong that nothing can escape from it whatsoever. And that's what we call a black hole. Yeah. And um, these things are really fun. 
Because if you just think about them just a little bit, you can become hopelessly confused. <laughs> like all the best physics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's true, right? All the best physics is the, the stuff that can get you hopelessly confused. Absolutely. Okay? So here's the thing. Um, so when you when you take something and you drop it into the black hole, then uh, the black hole gets a little bit bigger and it and it eats the thing. And now, um, you see, this this might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, okay? At, at different levels, okay, depending <laughs> on your personality, I suppose. It might make you feel a little uncomfortable at different levels because, you know, if you think about it, there's something a bit unsettling about the idea that a black hole eats something um, without a trace. I mean, sort of in, in everyday life, that, that doesn't actually happen, right? In everyday life, you can't really destroy information, okay? So, um, you know, you might, you might think that you can, right? Like, imagine you can, you can take a, a book with writing on it and you can and you can burn the book, say, right? And the yeah. book burns and all the writing is gone. Mm -hmm. Except, you know, not, not really, right? Like if you really cared about it, what you could do is you could track all the particles of smoke and ash that are spiraling up from the book. And you could try to follow those guys backwards, you know, reconstruct the trajectory of smoke and ash. And in principle, you know, if you worked hard enough, you could reconstruct the, the information in the book. It's not destroyed. It's just sort of moved into a different form. If you'd like to try and prove this point by burning a book and then trying to reconstruct the information, I wish you the best of luck. Black holes, um, they seem to really destroy information completely because of what I just said, that nothing comes out from a black hole. Once you drop something into a black hole, it looks like it's gone forever. And so this is, I think, the first sort of immediate um, confusion that people had about black holes. You know, what's happening? Is it really okay for a black hole to eat something without a trace? Doesn't that seem, you know, it's, it's a new thing in physics. Mm. It uh, sort of conflicts with some basic principles of how we think the universe works in that information should never be completely destroyed. One of the big discoveries in this field of, of black holes eating things without a trace was a discovery by Stephen Hawking, who's of course, you know, an insanely famous scientist for, for inventing many, many different things. One of the, the, maybe the most dramatic impact that he had on theoretical physics was his discovery that if you take a black hole and if you look at it very closely, in other words, if you try to combine the theory of black holes with the theory of quantum mechanics, what, what Stephen Hawking found is that it, a black hole, though it looks like it eats everything up, it's an object that has a temperature, which means that like all other objects that have a temperature, in other words, that are hot, it radiates energy, mm -hmm. okay? And this temperature is, is called the Hawking temperature, and this phenomenon that black holes radiate is called Hawking radiation. And so that was a, that was a big deal, basically because it sort of changed the picture I just told you before. In other words, it looks like if you if you drop something into a black hole, what happens isn't that it's really gone without a trace. What happens instead is that the black hole will slowly radiate radiation away very, 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 very slowly in a very, very gentle manner until it evaporates away completely. So just like burning the book then, is that similar to the smoke and the ash that's coming off the fire? That's, a, that's exactly the right question to ask. Because you would think yes, right? Mm -hmm. You would think that's the case. Yeah. Except that Hawking immediately knew, even in his very first calculation, that it doesn't really look like that. Instead, it looks like the, the Hawking radiation that comes out, it comes out in a manner that carries no information whatsoever about what went inside. So does that mean it's just a scramble? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the right word. That's, in fact, exactly what it's called. Uh, black <laughs> holes seem to be perfect scramblers in that you drop information in, it scrambles it completely, and it throws out pure radiation with exactly zero information in it. Wow, what a machine. What a machine, right? So in a sense, this makes the problem even worse, to be completely honest. When I first told you a black hole eats things and it doesn't let it out again, 
you could at least convince yourself that you know the information was inside. Maybe you can't read it, but whatever, it's in there. You know, it's like a safe with the with your book inside, and it's okay. Yeah. This makes it worse. You know, now not only is the book, you know, it's not that it stores the book's information. You drop the book in, you wait for you know a few million years, and uh, all the information is definitely completely gone. And this is just not how physics is meant to work. Like one of the fundamental principles of physics is that you never lose information. And yet a black hole is looking like it's an information destroyer. Exactly. This is called the information paradox. And, um, and this is really fun. Physicists, I think they, they love these problems because, you know, it's sort of nice because you can kind of state this in a, in a reasonably simple way. Like, I, I think I haven't actually lied to you about anything I said. <laughs> I, kind of told you, I kind of told you the truth, more or less. Yeah. Uh, and you already see there's a problem. So what's the problem with destroying information? Why, why is it a rule in physics that that's not allowed? So uh, this sort of has to do with, uh, with quantum mechanics. So um, we spend a lot of time talking about big things, okay, like black holes and so on. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about small things. Small things obey the, the rules of quantum mechanics. The basic idea of quantum mechanics is that uh, it's never true that objects are doing only one thing at once, okay? So uh, let, me, let me say what I explain what I mean by that a little bit more. It, it seems to us that we are sitting here, right? I'm sitting at my, at my desk in Newcastle. You're sitting at, at your desk in, um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure where you are. London. Yeah, London. London. Yes, you're sitting at your desk in London. And um, that, that's it, right? That, that's where I am. I'm really right here in Newcastle. And that's happening because I'm rather a large object. I'm very big. Mm -hmm. That's not the case for small objects. If you, if you look inside my body, one of the electrons that makes me up, then you see it's it's not true that it's only doing one thing at once. It it turns out that there's always a small probability that it is doing something different. In other words, you can't pin it down to one place. It's as though for, for me, I'm sitting in Newcastle, it's as though I had a small probability of being not in Newcastle, but in Durham, which is a few miles south, or you know, a smaller probability still of being in London. It was as though my I had a small probability of being in many different places at once. This doesn't happen for large objects, but it does happen for small ones. It's always true that electrons are doing multiple things at once. In other words, they always have a small probability to be sort of spread out. So um, that's the basic idea of quantum mechanics, that you can never know everything about an electron. You can never pin it down. There's always a small chance it'll be doing something different. You can never really localize it. It sounds like quantum mechanics is a totally different way of looking at the universe from, from classical mechanics, from the kind of the mechanics of big objects. Because it would be insane to think of you being in Newcastle and also having a probability that you're in Durham or, or any other city. Um, so quantum mechanics sounds quite weird in that respect. Absolutely, yes. It's like the most fun, one of the most fun and most crazy things about physics, that nature really works like this. You know, it, it's really just a fact mm. that you cannot know everything about about a system in nature. And this has been experimentally verified? Oh, yes, yes. Quantum mechanics is, uh, you know, by now it's insanely carefully experimentally verified. Because I imagine when we first discovered it, we thought, oh, there must be something wrong with what we've done. Yes. Physics can't yes. be so weird. And yet here we are, physics is weird. Exactly, exactly. It's really great fun because when you first learn about it, you're like, there is no way this can be true. But then after a few years, you begin to realize there was really no other way it could have been. <laughs> nothing else really makes sense. If you think hard about it, nothing else really makes sense. Quantum way is the only way. Quantum way is the only way, yes. So now we seem to have a problem because you are a, a, an object of a reasonable size and you're definitely in Newcastle. Right. There's not a bit of you that's in Durham. There's not a bit of you that's in London. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're fully in Newcastle. Yeah. And yet the electrons that make you up don't behave in the same way. So for them, there's a non-zero chance of them being somewhere completely different. 
So how can particles that are on a quantum scale and operate under those rules make up a classical object, which is then definitely in one place? So there, there are many ways to answer this. One way to do it is to, um, to think about the fact, you see, I'm, I'm very large, right? Uh, I mean, sorry, on, <laughs> on the scales of the electron. And uh, I'm made of around 10 to the 23 electrons. And um, if you imagine me being in London, what would that mean if there's a probability for me to be in London? I think for that to, to make sense, what would really have to happen is that all of my particles would have to be in London. And you know, the, the chance of that happening in a, in a coherent way, that each of my particles, the you know, it's a small probability for each of them to be in London. Yeah. But if you now raise that to the power of 10 to the 23, which is more or less the calculation one would have to do, the chance of that happening is insanely small. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's at a, at a very rough level, that's really what happens. That's kind of how classical physics comes out from quantum physics, that these fluctuations tend to kind of, um, in a sense, they kind of average themselves out when you have lots of things. And that's why one object looks like it's sitting there, even though at a microscopic scale, all the things that make it up are fizzing around in this crazy quantum way. I think that is the, the simplest way to say what's, what's really happening. This is still bothering me a little bit because, yeah. uh, because I'm wondering then if it's just a numbers game, there's a vanishingly small probability that all your atoms will simultaneously decide they want to be in London, given that you are in fact sitting in Newcastle. Yeah. And yet that's still not zero. Yes, that's right. By the laws of quantum mechanics, nothing is ever completely zero, strictly zero. But yeah, I don't know. It's so insanely close to zero, you know, that it's not a, well, let me, let me try to give a, a picture for how close to zero it is right? Mm. Let's imagine that there's a probability for each of these things, each of my electrons in my body to tunnel to London. That probability is itself very, very, very small. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever that probability is, that'll be raised to the power of 10 to the 23. Mm, which is a very, very, very big number. Very, very, very big number. So that means the chance of this thing happening is 0. 0.0000 and then 10 to the 23 zero. <laughs> and then that's multiplied by the already vanishingly small probability for a single electron to do it. And then a one, you know. So that's, you know, that's so close to zero that I think that we should just call that. For all intents and purposes, that is that is really zero, I would say. It's a shame. I was quite looking forward to being able to apparate to Newcastle and then apparate back to London. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But it doesn't sound like it's particularly likely. It's um, not a reliable means of transport, yeah, sadly enough. I think the reason why I got into this, this quantum thing was to try to explain something about, about information. Yes. In quantum mechanics, you see there's this idea that, that probabilities have to be conserved. Imagine you, let's just think about a single electron for a second. Mm -hmm. There should always be a probability for an electron to be somewhere. In other words, uh, if you have an electron, it should never happen that all the probabilities don't add up to one. Yes. Maybe a simpler way to think about that is like a dice. It's just the fact that if you add up, you know, all the possible outcomes of a dice together, they have probability one. If you roll a dice, then you're going to get one of the outcomes of the dice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in quantum mechanics, because we're always dealing at, at the end of the day with probabilities, that that property is even more important. It's almost a common sense thing. The probability should always add up to one. It turns out that when I say that information is lost, what's happening is that you're sort of messing around with this idea you're becoming uncomfortably close to, to flirting with the fact that probabilities might not be quite adding up to one. That's how information loss in quantum mechanics manifests itself. And that's sort of a very bad thing. I'm trying to think how that would look in a classical way if you, if you rolled a dice and the probabilities didn't add up to one, what would that mean? Yeah, the truth is it's hard to answer on a classical level because it, really, it just really makes no sense whatsoever. Okay. In, in quantum mechanics, it, it makes a little bit more sense 
I, I'm sort of being here. I'm being a little bit sketchy about what 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 it really means. It's very hard for me to visualize what it would actually look like. Like I can't think of a consistent way for that universe to work afterwards. People have tried uh, hard actually to to try to think of what this really means, mostly by trying to localize all the weird effects near black holes. Basically, they try to they try to localize all the weirdness, all the probability non-conservation, all of that. They try to localize it near black holes. But it's sort of hard to do that in a consistent way because of this basic fact that we just described, that once you have some weird things start happening in quantum mechanics, anything that can happen will happen with some probability. And they tend to percolate outwards from the black hole and also affect everyday life as well. Weird, weird, weird. If you believe in quantum mechanics, which you really should, because it's very well tested experimentally. Uh, and if you believe in black holes, which again, you really should, because we nowadays we actually see pictures of them uh, in the sky, then you, you sort of start to, to get into trouble because it really looks like this black holes really destroy information and are sort of in, in you know, in tension with these fundamental principles of quantum mechanics. And um, that's kind of uh, where we stood for a very long time. Um, so it sounds like we've reached the paradox between the big things and the small things, which is that the rules of quantum mechanics and the rules of black holes seem to be in conflict with each other. Yeah, that's right. This is, this is one tension between quantum mechanics and, and gravity. And I should say, by the way, there are others as well, actually. Quantum mechanics and gravity don't, basically, we understand how to make them play together in some situations, but a lot of the fun in this is just that looking at situations where we don't understand how to make them play well together and seeing what happens then. Mm -hmm. And black holes are perfect because you see, though they're very big, uh, they're, they're also very heavy. And it turns out you can arrange things so that they're small enough so that quantum mechanics is important, um, but they're still very heavy, so gravity is still important. And that's where all the fun comes in. I think this is one of the main directions of research in uh, sort of in, in string theory, is trying to understand how to make black holes and quantum mechanics fit together well. And um, we, we think actually we understand how this works in a lot of detail in certain cases. So let me now tell you what we think is happening. Yeah, please do. What we believe is that if you have a theory or a world with, with quantum mechanics and gravity in it, like the world of the black hole, then we believe that that universe can actually be described by a system that lives in one smaller dimension. And uh, this idea is called, uh, it's called holography or holographic duality is the fancy name for it. You see what it says is, it says that this black hole is really like a hologram. It's like the, it's like the tail of the elephant instead of the, the feet of the elephant that tail of the elephant lives in two dimensions and not in three. And somehow this thing that looks like it's three dimensions is really just a sort of a projection of this intrinsically two-dimensional object. You know, you look at your, your credit card or whatever and has that little picture of the bird that looks three-dimensional even though it's really two-dimensional. It's really a lot like that. The, the system is really two-dimensional, but its projection looks like a three-dimensional black hole. Wow. It, it, that might yeah. not sound uh, completely plausible, but uh, sounds bonkers. Sounds bonkers. So, <laughs> no, exactly. So this theory, in summary, is that when we look at a black hole, we're looking at a three-dimensional projection of something that actually intrinsically exists in two dimensions, and we're just seeing the the version of it that leaks into our into our three-dimensional reality. That's that's roughly. I think that's that's roughly right. It's just you see there were there were words in there that were sort of um, emotionally loaded in a sense. <laughs> Uh, which is my fault because I, I think I used them as well. But like the words were, you know, like intrinsically or, you know, or absolutely. You see, you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. The way that I try to tell this to people is really that there are two ways to look at it. There's the way which looks like a black hole in our three-dimensional universe. And there's the way to think about it in a different universe. It's just a hot object. It's like a hot box of gas. And there's no gravity in the lower dimensional description. 
So the thing that looks like a black hole with gravity in three dimensions is just a hot box of gas in an alternate two-dimensional world. Now, you know, which of those do you like better? Which is more intrinsic? That kind of depends on what sort of question you want to ask. You know, they're, they're both valid descriptions. Um, but some things are easier to think about in one way of looking at it, and some things are easier to think about in the other way of looking at it. So here's a question, because I keep going on about these fish potentially living in an alternate reality and in a different dimension to us. Yeah. So if they live in this two-dimensional version of reality, they're going to see this hot box of gas as the same object that we see as a black hole. Right. Yeah, that's completely possible. Yes, that's completely possible. But it's um, from the fish's point of view, I think what they would see is that there's a liquid, there's a, a hot gas surrounding them. And they would look at properties of that liquid, you know, and they would, they would see what's going on. And then they would speculate, maybe there's an alternate description of this liquid. And that alternate description of the liquid would really be a black hole in one higher dimension. Gotcha. That's, I think, the fish's point of view on the same thing. And they wouldn't see any of the gravity. They wouldn't see any of the gravity. If they're living in the, the lower dimensional world, it's an important fact that there's no gravity in that lower dimensional world. It's just particles interacting with each other. One species box of gas is another species black hole. Sometimes you're looking at the trunk of a problem. Other times you're staring at the tail. Do the rules of quantum mechanics still apply in the fish's two-dimensional universe? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, they, they apply in a sense better, or let's just say less confusingly. Because you see, remember I said the thing that's hard about this is trying to get quantum mechanics and gravity to play well together? Yeah. The fish's alternate reality, the lower dimensional one, there's no gravity. There's just particles obeying the laws of quantum mechanics. And we know how to do that, actually. Right. So in a sense, it's easier. There's less confusion. And um, that's kind of the power of this, uh, that because in principle, we understand the lower dimensional thing a little bit better, we hope that we can use that to answer all of our deep questions about black holes and information and so on. Yeah. So to bring it back to the elephant, we're the guy who's, who's feeling the tail of the elephant and going, oh, I think this is a rope. But actually what we're seeing is a projection from a two-dimensional universe into our three-dimensional universe. Is that right? So um, the truth is when I, when I wrote that analogy, I didn't expect to, to have to uh, <laughs> it carefully. But if, uh, if you force me to, I think what it says is a little bit different, actually. Okay, yeah. There, there's an object, okay? I've, I've sort of avoided saying the, the words all this time, but now I'm just going to say them. Uh, there's an object, and that object is string theory. String theory is the theory that describes, or is the theory that we believe describes the marriage of quantum mechanics and gravity. And string theory is the elephant. Gotcha. It has different offshoots. If you look at string theory in one way, if you look at the tail, then you're going to see this black hole in a gravitating universe with three dimensions in it. But if you look not at the tail, but at like the legs, then you're going to be like, ah, this is actually a hot box of gas in one lower dimension. But these are both two different ways to describe a, a more fundamental underlying object, which is the string theory itself. And it's quite possible the elephant has other body parts, you know, the tusk, uh, the ears. I, I forget, There's, the, the parable talks about all the different body parts. And it's quite possible that all of those things will look different still, you know, and there'll all be different ways to slice this underlying uh, fundamental thing. But the fundamental thing is string theory. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's string theory, but um, I use that word loosely it's really just the theory that describes the marriage of, of quantum mechanics and gravity, which we tend to we tend to call string theory, I guess. And I hate to ask, um, but why is it called string theory? What does it have to do with string? Oh, no, that's that's a great question. Um, you shouldn't hate to ask. <laughs> um, so what, what string theory says, at its, at its basic level, what it says is 
you, you know, there's many different kinds of particles, right? Yeah. Like electrons and protons which are made of quarks and so on. And they all have kind of different properties. You know, electrons have a certain mass and protons have a very different mass and so on. The, the idea of string theory is that actually all of these different kinds of particles, they're not really distinct. What they are is they're different vibrational modes of tiny, tiny loops of string. So um, when I explain this, uh, normally um, I make my fingers into a little loop of string and then I, I mime it vibrating in different ways. You know, you have a little loop of string and it can sort of wiggle in one way or wiggle in a different way. And each of those ways gives us a different fundamental particle. Exactly. And what's really interesting is that if you do this, um, okay, it actually gives you way too many different kinds of particles, but one of those kinds of particles that it gives you is the particle that's involved with gravity. So you get gravity out of this picture all by itself, basically. That's why we think string theory describes gravity, because the gravity particle sort of comes out from this all by itself. So this is now sounding like a really useful method for marrying these two things who wouldn't be friends earlier. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's really kind of amazing because... Uh, People invented this for a totally different reason. They wanted to use string theory to describe the theory of the strong nuclear force, which is very complicated. Mm. And then they kept finding out that it kept giving them gravity. You know, gravity just kept popping out from this. And, you know, at some point people were just like, okay, let's use it to describe gravity instead. <laughs> at that point, the field just exploded. Yeah. It all worked out. Yeah, it all worked out. Well, when, when I say it all worked out, um, I should say to your listeners that I'm, I'm glossing over the details, which are all really, really important. In, in sure, this. sure. And I feel like any conversation about big physics ideas, you have to do a certain amount of, of compromise on the key mathematical details. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe, maybe one thing that I'll just say for, for your fish is that everything I'm saying sort of, we understand how it works in sort of uh, toy universes, which are actually rather different from our own uh, in like the number of dimensions and things like that. Our universe, uh, we love it. It's great. It's full of certain kinds of matter. It has a certain set of elementary particles. And it's really important. It has exactly those sets of elementary particles that has exactly electrons, protons, and so on. Because if any of those properties were slightly different, uh, then uh, we wouldn't exist. Yes. You know? Yeah. The truth is, it is very hard to describe our exact universe in string theory. And we have not quite managed to do that yet. And honestly, the jury is out on whether or not that's for fundamentally, you know, intractable reasons or because um, uh, we just aren't smart enough yet to understand how to do it. For example, the precise way in which our universe expands, the fact that it expands in a way that's getting faster and faster and faster, this is actually rather hard to set up within string theory. So when I say toy universes, I think one of the most dramatic things is that I'm going to assume that the, the large scale structure of the universe is completely different uh, from our own. And that's, that's a rather big one. Sure. Also, the spectrum of particles in these universes is, is rather different. It turns out that we, as string theorists, find it rather hard to calculate things. We have to make assumptions about how symmetric the, the set of particles is. It just turns out to be really hard to do it for a set of particles like our own universe. So, um, so basically, that's, that's the properties of these toy universes. They're different from ours in, in rather, I would say, important ways. And the, the sort of ongoing research program is to try to bridge that gap to make the toy universes more and more like our own until we can finally say things about our own universe. So even if we do that, even if we take string theory and we manage to apply it to the universe we actually live in, yeah. it, it still seems like it's a, it's a totally theoretical thing. And... I wonder whether it could be testable. Is there a way that we could examine string theory and sort of say, yes, 
this is the way the universe is fundamentally and this is what the elephant looks like or no this is not what the elephant looks like and, and reject it we have a different um, elephant altogether <laughs> exactly absolutely. yeah is that yes, a yes. possible thing that could happen or is it untestable completely that's that's a fantastic question so um in physics whenever you're trying to solve a problem um you should ask yourself always when is this solution important i'm trying to solve the problem of quantum mechanics and gravity together right mm. you can sort of calculate the scale at which this is important and this scale is called the planck scale it's basically the size of one of these little loops of string. So really, really tiny. <laughs> it's so small that if you took one of the ordinary atoms in our bodies, and if you inflated that atom to be the size of the entire observable universe, then one of the strings that makes up this atom would be then roughly one meter in diameter at that point. Wow. Okay. So it's absolutely insane. You know, it's really hard to come up with a good analogy for this, to be honest, just because it's so tiny, you know. Um, this is much worse than like, you know, the drops of water in the ocean or something like that. It's, it's much worse than that. It's absolutely insanely small. Yeah. So the easiest way to test string theory would be to make some sort of microscope or, you know, a particle accelerator is really a fancy kind of microscope and use it to look at objects that are that small. We, we can't do that. It, it's just, it's just way too small. So from that point of view, what that really means is that any question that directly probes this aspect of quantum gravity is just not an immediately experimentally accessible question. Now, that's, I think, sort of the, the pessimistic answer. <laughs> and uh, let me not give you a bit more of an optimistic answer. You see, it, it turns out that when you understand a theory sort of well, it often has implications in ways that you would not have expected. You see, quantum mechanics, I keep talking about how it describes things that are really small. Yeah. But when you learn quantum mechanics, one of the things that you do is you solve a scattering problem and you calculate a certain uh, rate at which things scatter. And then you apply that to um, the sky. That's a way to understand why the sky is blue. Mm -hmm. It's because certain frequencies of light are scattered more strongly. And we know that because we solved the quantum mechanics problem of how light scatters off of dust particles in the sky. That's not obvious, you know, that, that had to happen. Yeah. That you know, quantum mechanics describing some weird things somehow ends up describing the fact that the sky is blue, which is a really obvious fact, you know, it's really just visible. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, that came because we understood quantum mechanics really well. And we could then sort of realize how it really imprints itself on the fabric of our reality in, in very dramatic ways. And I think many of us, uh, myself included, think that string theory is somewhat similar. You see, it's, it's such, a, such a big elephant that when we understand it well, we'll realize that it has actually imprinted itself on things that are around us already, that we do observe, even though we don't quite know that yet. Sure. That's my uh, optimistic viewpoint. I think it remains to be seen that it's actually correct or not. But, you know, let's cross our fingers. Let's cross our fingers, exactly, yeah. Thank you so much to Nabil for transforming my perspective on the universe. I'll never look at a box of gas in the same way again. If you have questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, and you're on a planet with Twitter access, you can tweet me at MansfieldLizzie. I'd love that. Please do. Join me next week where we'll be lifting the lid on thermodynamics. Until then, keep breathing and look after your brain.